The Wheel of Crime podcast is a true crime podcast that includes graphic and explicit content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. On September 15, 2006 in New York, a 22-year-old man named Brian Barrett clocked off his shift at the Dynabraid Power Tool Plant around 10 p.m. He strode across the parking lot and got into his truck, pulling his key out to start it up. But before he could even slide the key into the ignition, three shots rang out from the darkness, passing through the driver's side window and into his young body. His body would be found two days later by a coworker. His parents didn't report him missing because they were on vacation, but who would want Brian dead? His friends didn't know of any enemies that he may have had, and most everyone said he was a nice guy that was willing to help everybody. Brian was a star athlete in high school, playing on the football and baseball team. After high school, he had played ball in the midget league and was voted most valuable player. He worked for a machine shop after graduation to save up for a car, and after being laid off, he enrolled in Erie Community College. He started working for Dynabraid around that time as a part-time employee. After getting a two-year degree, he would transfer to Buffalo State College, studying to become an industrial arts teacher. He was the all-American boy preparing for a bright future. Police interviewed neighbors and coworkers, and they reported hearing gunshots, as well as seeing a man in camouflage and a ski mask running from the scene. Officers found a leather cartridge case covered in dog hair and a peach pit near Brian's truck. The tire on his truck was flat, indicating to, to police that this was not a random act and was in fact intentional. After investigators talked to some of Brian's co-workers, they started putting the pieces together on a puzzle that still had huge missing gaps. By the end of November, one of Brian's co-workers, 47-year-old married father of two, Thomas Montgomery, was arrested for his murder. What police would end up discovering would turn everything on its head, making this one of the strangest cases in the past decade and a half. Thanks for joining me for episode number eight, Stranger Than Fiction, The Murder of Brian Barrett. 
I am your host, Megan, and if you would like to interact with the show, email us at wheelocrimepodcast at gmail.com. That's wheelo, the letter O, crime podcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook under Wheel of Crime Podcast or find us on Instagram at Wheel of Crime Podcast. Keep sending in those listener stories. If you'd like to be on the show talking about your experience, email the show or go to anchor.fm and leave me a voicemail. Or send me your digits and I'll call ya. We still have the GoFundMe page set up and in the show notes for our music maestro Aaron. Please check that out and donate. Anything helps. Now, on with the show. According to socialcatfish.com, the term catfishing is derived from an old fish story about simulating cod to increase the taste and texture. So as the story goes, a fisherman had a problem with cod becoming bored and understimulated while being tanked during the trip from Alaska to China, which causes the meat to become stale and tasteless. Someone decided to put catfish in the tanks with the cod because catfishers catfishes catfish are natural predators and this is not verified as cod or saltwater fish and catfish are freshwater fish they would chase the cod keeping them moving and agile thus producing better quality cod eventually this became a metaphor for online dating the term eventually would become synonymous with trickery the urban dictionary defines catfishing as someone who assumes a false identity on the internet in an effort to deceive I'm sure you've heard of cases where a person puts up a picture and says, hey, this is me, and it looks nothing like the person once you've met them face to face. That is catfishing. So how can you tell if you're being catfished? Littlethings.com meted out a list of seven signs to tell if you're being catfished. Number one, no or very few friends and or followers. Most people will browse social media profiles of those they meet or might potentially date. Check the friends list. If they have Fewer than 10 friends, that's a huge red flag of a false profile. Or a lot of celebrity friends, or a lot of, you know, like naked women or something like that. Because then you know it's really probably not a real profile. Also, check out when they created the profile. If it's a brand new profile, be suspicious. Most people who have established social media accounts have more than a handful of friends and or followers. And chances are, if they're on a dating site, they know their way around social media. Number two, they avoid face-to-face meetings, Skype, and or FaceTime sessions. It's natural to want to meet after getting to know someone and even to see a video of them in real time. However, if you start dodging this and giving, if they start dodging this and giving you the lame line of photographs steal your soul so I don't take them, they're probably not who you, who they're telling you that they are. Also, if they make plans with you to meet up but constantly keep breaking those plans don't waste your time it's probably not the person you think it is number three their picture is too good to be true not everyone is model perfect but if their photo seems too good to be true it probably is it's easy as hell to steal pictures from modeling sites and not saying that the person isn't drop dead gorgeous my cat's over here going crazy but let's be completely honest here people with those perfect bodies and faces usually don't need to go online to meet people Professional pictures are typically not used as profile pictures, so watch out for that. Number four, they claim your neighbors. Another ploy used by catfishers is claiming that they only live a few miles away or went to the high school that you went to. When this happens, start asking specific questions about streets, teachers, classmates, etc. If they seem like they're stumbling or have no idea what you're talking about or giving stupid vague answers, they're probably looking up things on your profile just to make a connection with you. Be wary of this sort of thing. Number five, they get serious way too fast. 
most people like to take things slowly on the internet, get to know someone a while before, you know, quote, falling in love. You haven't even met them yet, but they're already telling you what a goddess of God you are, telling you how spiritually connected they feel to you, sending incredibly flirtatious love letters, and sometimes even proposing marriage. It's easy to get swept up in this sort of love bombing, but be careful. This sets you up for instant failure. Usually the person on the other end is either trying to ply your wallet from your proverbial hands or worse. <clears throat> Number six, they always seem to need help. If the new person in your life starts asking for money, rides, or anything else, run. A catfish will always have excuses lined up waiting to manipulate you. My car broke down. I can't afford the internet bill to talk to you. I have a life-threatening illness. They're trying to guilt trip you into paying their bills, right? Wiring them cash or giving them gifts. Don't do it. If they're really interested in you, they don't want anything from you other than just to get to know you. Number seven, their stories seem too far-fetched or too vague. Listening to what a person isn't telling you is the biggest indicator of what a person is really saying to you. A catfish will often try to get, your t to get their target to do all the talking, so ask very specific questions. Watch for outlandish or vague answers such as, I'm a doctor who rescues puppies in my spare time and I read to orphans and I knit sweaters for homeless chickens, you know, stuff like that. If they seem to be extremely or living an extremely unusual life, grill them for a bit and see if their answers become evasive. If you suspect that someone is actually a catfish, do some background checking. If you confirm that they are indeed a catfish, cut off all contact, block the account, and report it to the social media service. So this leads us into today's episode about the murder of Brian Barrett. Now this is probably one of the weirdest cases of catfishing I have ever heard of. Several podcasts have covered this case, so go check them out. I love listening to different podcasts who cover the same cases because everyone tells the story differently. And sometimes you get a different perspective or learn something else about the case that one podcast may not have covered. So in order to really understand this case and why Brian was cut down before he even began his life in earnest... We have to talk about the man who murdered him, Thomas Montgomery. So let's get in our Wayback Machine and go back to 2005. Now back then you could get online and play games on a site called Pogo.com and while you play games you could chat with other players. A person could spend virtually hours just playing and chatting, wasting time and just numbing their mind while they distress from the day's activities. Tom, whose screen name was Marine Sniper, struck up a friendship with a 17-year-old girl named Jessie who lived in West Virginia. Talking to her seemed easy and effortless, and since it was just an internet friendship and really meant nothing, Tom began to recreate himself to be more interesting to Jessie, whose online name was Tall Hot Blonde, which is spelled T-A-L-H-O-T-B-L-O-N-D. He sent her a picture of himself uh, as a young Marine in his Marine uniform, so it was him and if Jesse noticed the age of the photograph, she didn't mention it to Tom. This was a 30-year-old photograph that, that he sent to her when he actually was 18. She began sending him photos of herself in provocative outfits, some upskirt photos, and racy half-nudes. And he was such the smitten kitten. They chatted on Pogo, MySpace, and Yahoo, and their friendship was growing as time passed. He told her that he was 18, tall and muscular, good-looking and well-hung, who was heading out to Iraq for deployment soon. He threw in a few sob stories saying that his mother died of cancer when he was 12, which was true, and that he had been accused of raping a cheerleader in high school, which was true. Um, but he turned, he turned his life around and followed his father into uh, 
the military, who he was also a Marine. So he created this persona for himself loosely based on the events from his real life. Um, so they occasionally talked on the phone while Tommy was, quote, overseas. His dad, his dad would pass messages and photos between the two through his Marine contacts. They spent a lot of time getting to know each other, getting close, and starting to depend on each other for emotional support. Tom says that he did this because he was just having fun and he figured it would be over once he was deployed, but it just never stopped. It actually got more intense during this time and they began to engage in cyber sex. Now for all you kids out there, cyber sex was the Stone Age version of sexting. So as expected, their relationship was not without its drama. Tom suspected that Jessie was flirting with other men online, but to make it up to him, she went ahead and sent one of her thongs and a silver chain with a heart on it. Then his father stepped in and warned her sternly not to break his sensitive, inexperienced son's heart. Eventually, Tommy would propose to Jessie while on his deployment, and she said yes. She couldn't wait to be his bride. This is roughly six months or more after they started talking. Tom was so addicted to his online life at this time that he'd created, he'd written himself a letter on his computer saying that on January 2nd, 2006, Tom Montgomery, 46-year-old, ceases to exist and is replaced by an 18-year-old battle-scar Marine who is moving out to West Virginia to be with the love of his life. Tom's wife eventually intercepted one of these packages and confronted Tom. She knew what was, I mean, she knew something was going on, but she wasn't really sure. Anyway, Tom blew her off and told her it was his business, leave me alone, I can do what I want. So his wife took matters into her own hands and sent back the picture, or sent back the, the package to her with a picture of their family, and she sent this back to Jesse, showing her that he obviously wasn't an 18-year-old Marine, but rather a middle-aged married father of two. This, of course, upset Jesse, making her furious at Tom. So how does, how does Brian tie into all this? Well, Brian and Tom would play online poker through the same chat room on that site, pogo.com, and this is where Brian, whose screen name was Beefcake, <laughs> would eventually meet Jesse. When Jesse found out that Tommy was really a middle-aged man, she went to Brian, asking him if it were true. Brian said he knew nothing about Tommy, but yet, yes, Tom was 46, was married, and had two kids. Jesse was furious and broke things off with Tom, but to get even, she began flirting with Brian and sending him racy pictures and giving him the attention that she'd showered on Tommy. They began bragging to Tom about it, which in turn pissed him off. Eventually, Brian and Jesse would start uh, spreading malicious rumors about Tom online, posting that he was a loser and a predator, making people think he was a pedophile, eventually getting him kicked off of his favorite uh, game slash chat room. Then it bled over into real life with Brian telling everyone at work what had happened, and they were laughing about him behind his back. Jesse asked Brian if they wanted to meet up one day, and of course, Brian was all for it. He would tell Tom, and of course, this enraged Tom. Tom... Uh, Tom sent Brian angry messages, but Brian didn't understand why Tom was so mad. If they were probably never going to meet up, she's a teenager, he's an older man, why are you so mad about it? But conveniently, just before Brian was set to go meet up with Jesse, that fickle little teenager broke it off with him saying all he wanted was sex. Well, when that's what you wave in front of a dog, you wave a steak in front of a dog, all that dog wants is a steak. They don't want your fucking loving. Anyway, uh, so <laughs> so then she decided to start up with Tom again, saying, <clears throat> excuse me, saying that she missed Tommy and that Tommy still lived inside of him. 
she didn't stop flirting with the other guys and flaunted it in front of Tom and eventually would start talking to Brian again. I mean, it's just manipulative all the way around. Well, Tom was, was absolutely furious and began telling Jesse that at this time, Brian would pay him blood. Now, Jesse told Brian what was going on, but Brian blew it off. He didn't seem to pay much attention to it because he never reported it to anyone. Jesse decided to end it for good, and Tom tells her she's nothing to him now but a lying whore and went on a diatribe of hateful, hurtful, violent things that he said to her. You know, she's a piece of crap. The same things that men tell you, you know, when you reject them. Oh, you're so beautiful. No, I, I don't think of you. You stupid lying whore. You know, that kind of stupid crap. Tom kept trying to engage with Jesse, but whenever she saw him online, she would log off. Of course, after all this being called names, I would. So after three nights of this, Tom decided enough was enough and this had to end. But unfortunately, it ended the life of a promising young man instead. Now, investigators would soon uncover the truth. But what really put the nail in Tom's coffin was the DNA analysis that came back on the peach pit near Brian's truck. Tom swore up and down that he didn't kill Brian and that it made sense that the peach pit was in his employer's parking lot because he'd thrown it out there a few days before. But, as investigators pointed out, in a parking lot with 400 other parking spaces, the pit was found within a foot of the flat tire on Brian's truck, which was on the passenger side so Brian wouldn't see it before getting into this vehicle, leaving him a sitting duck. They also found shell casings at the scene from a carbine rifle. Investigators had asked, had asked co-workers about Tom, and one, one co-worker said uh, that two years prior, Tom had said in passing that if he were to kill anybody, he would make it look like a sniper attack with a carbine rifle. And that co-worker in particular had no idea what kind of weapon had been used in Brian's murder, just that he was shot. Tom told the police, uh, or Tom said the police have uh, stock of each weapon and their receipts that he owned. And he didn't own a 30 caliber rifle, he said, because they never found one. But... Police found a photo in his house a few years prior that show, or from a few years prior that showed a 30 caliber rifle, 30 caliber rifle, I can't say that very well, in his gun case. He said it was an M1 BB gun, but the FBI broke it down bit by bit and could match it to a 30 caliber, caliber rifle. Easy for you to say. Several co-workers said that Tom inquired about Brian's work schedule the day of the murder. After checking his cell phone records, they found he had made a call near the factory within minutes of when the shots were reported. Investigators couldn't find Tom, and he feared that he was heading to West Virginia to find Jesse. They had to make contact with her to find out what she knew, and more than that, if Tom was so angry with Brian that he would kill him, what would he do to Jesse? Investigators made contact with Jesse, and when they do, everything about this case changed. Investigators into the murder of Brian Barrett believe that Thomas Montgomery killed the man in a fit of jealousy over an online love interest. They had found the online messages that they loved and some of the content specifically in the last few times that they spoke led them to believe that Jessie was in danger. So they tracked her down through MySpace and found her in Oak Hill, Virginia, West Virginia, I'm sorry. Around 3 a.m. police knock on the door and Jessie's mother, Mary Shiler, answered it. Mary told them that Jessie wasn't there but inquired as to what was going on as any worried mother would, when the police come knocking on her door at 3 a.m. asking about her teenage daughter. They tell her about the love triangle that ended up in murder, and Mary begins to cry. In what would be a dramatic moment, or I'm sorry, what had to be a dramatic moment, Mary looked up at the officers and said, it was me. 
I was pretending to be my daughter the whole time. So there it was. Just like 46-year-old Tom had pretended to be an 18-year-old battle-scarred Marine, so had 46-year-old Mary Shiler pretended to be a 17-year-old girl. But not just any girl. She was using actual photographs of her daughter as bait. For the same reason that Tom had created a younger, more attractive version of himself, Mary also knew that guys would never fawn over an, over, an older, overweight woman in her 40s, so she sent out pictures of her much younger, much more attractive daughter. Mary was able to fill in the gaps for investigators, stating that Tom had called her shortly after the murder to let her know that her boyfriend was, quote, easy to take care of. She put the pieces of this puzzle in place, and it all fit, sealing Tom's fate. Tom still had no idea who Jesse really was, and after his arrest, detectives told him the news. They said that his face was as white as a sheet. Tom stated that he could have been knocked over with a feather at the news, but that he was more disgusted with himself than her. While in jail, Tom kept digging his own grave deeper and deeper. He, he was telling investigators that he was completely innocent, but apparently he didn't realize that all calls are recorded coming in and going out of the jail. He made a phone call to his wife, admitting to her that the gun clip found at the scene was his, and another to his daughter, asking her to alibi him on the night that Brian was killed. Now, even though the call was recorded, and it was clearly his voice on the recording, he emphatically denies making that phone call and says he doesn't remember having that conversation at all. Even though they have it there clearly, they can't, he can't deny it, but he does. But despite his denials, his lawyer knew enough was enough and encouraged him to take the plea deal. Prosecutors offered a deal that if he pled guilty, he would get 20 years, and his lawyer, and his lawyer says that he did this to spare his daughters the agony of a media circus and trial, which they probably would have to be called as witnesses against their own father. On August 20, 2007, Thomas Montgomery admitted in open court to killing Brian Barrett. Days later, he fired his attorney, trying to change his plea or withdraw his plea, claiming his innocence. He stated that he was pressured to cop the plea by his lawyer, and his request w uh, to withdraw the plea was denied. Mary said once she found out his real age, she continued chatting with him to, get this, to protect other real teenagers. She claimed to have kept him on the hook so he wouldn't prey on other young girls after seeing him in teen chat rooms. So I saw him in teen game rooms, and I was so afraid that he was going to do the same thing to somebody that really was a teen, and it was scary. I thought as long as he was talking to me that he would leave others alone. Authorities did all they could to charge her with something. I mean, after all, if not for Mary's deception, none of the events that happened would have been set into motion. But try as they might, she hadn't broken any laws. Morally, what she did was disgusting, and her behavior was sophomoric and manipulative. But being a morally reprehensible human being doesn't break any laws. An officer was quoted as saying, she was doing absolutely nothing wrong. She obviously didn't realize what was going to happen, that there would be a love triangle. Mary was not, Mary has not apologized to, to neither her former husband nor her daughter, both of whom have cut, have cut ties with her completely. Okay, so let's, let's break this down because there are so many weird facets to this case, and while hindsight is twenty twenty, there's no way in this day and age, or so we think, that we could get hung up on something like this internet love thing. But it happens far more frequently than people realize. So if we take the list that I read at the beginning of the show and compare it to this case, we see a lot of telltale signs in this. 
Sorry for all the pauses. I have to keep pausing because my cats are destroying the whole room, apparently. So the first one is not having a lot of friends on social media. Now, this was back in 2005 when MySpace was still popular. This one is vague, though, because while Mary was pretending to be someone else, Jesse really was a real person with a real MySpace page. So it makes me curious if Tom looked her up on MySpace under Jesse's real account or if Mary created a different one. And without that, without that information, it's really hard to gauge that particular one. So the second is avoiding face-to-face -face meetings, Skype, or FaceTime. Of course, FaceTiming was still a few years in the future at this point, and most people weren't using Skype. But remember how just before Brian was going to meet Jesse, she broke it off with him saying he was only in it for the sex? Well, that's a big red flag for catfishing. Next one is their, uh, is their picture is too good to be true. Now, if, Google, if you Google this case and you see photos of Jesse, She's a gorgeous blonde who would have no reason in the world to go on the internet and spend hours talking to and getting to know men in other states. Her photo shows a sexy young woman about to take on the world. Even, even the way Tommy described himself was too good to be true. 18, muscular, 6'2", 9-inch penis. I left that detail out, but yes, that's a detail that was in that documentary, Tall Hot Blonde. <laughs> Remember, if they look like someone from a catalog, chances are good it's not real. The two quickly hit it off and was already throwing around the idea of marriage less than six months after they started talking. Tom let himself be sucked into this virtual world and gave no consideration to the warning signs right in front of his face. But then again, neither did Brian once he and Jesse started flirting and talking. Now, granted, he's a younger kid, but it just shows it doesn't matter your age. You can be sucked into this. So look, since the internet has taken off and taken hold, it's opened up a whole new world of lies, deceptions, and manipulations to which we could possibly be exposed. It's easy as hell to create a new persona and reach out to others as this new person, but how healthy is that? When I was a kid and AOL was first launched, chat rooms became a new addiction. People spent hours chatting online, game playing, and even role playing. I know, I was addicted to role playing. Uh, Vampire the Masquerade on chat on, on, on the chat platform IRC, which stands for Internet Relay Chat, loved doing that. And I made a lot of friends with who I'm still in contact with today and have become some of my best friends. And hell, there's even an episode of Roseanne where, and I love Roseanne, um, about, about this very thing when Jackie gets sucked into the Internet and David has to unplug her. <laughs> and that's just a great episode. The Internet has made this huge world very small. And it has helped people with limited social skills interact successfully with others. But it also opens up more avenues for sociopathic personalities to find other avenues to search for prey. And it's easy to get sucked into this if you have a limited ability to socialize. It's not only created new monsters, but new prey as well. Just as those who are manipulative and treacherous use those sorts of platforms to find new victims, it can blindside those who can't imagine how anybody could or would do that to other people. And unfortunately, you learn quickly in this life that not everyone has the same heart or intentions that you do. I don't agree with the police saying that Mary did absolutely nothing wrong. Yes, she did. Once she found out that Tom really wasn't Tommy, her 18-year-old battle-scar Marine, and that he was catfishing her just like she was catfishing him, she should have cut it off right there. That would be the adult thing to do. But instead, she acted very much like an immature, bratty teenager that she was playing and decided to pay him back by luring in yet another man, playing on his sympathies and using her daughter's photo to trick him into aiding her in paying Tom back for his betrayal. Tom made threats on Brian's life and instead of going to the police, 
told Brian himself, who just blew it off because Tom was a middle-aged loser predator and basically a pussy. Though neither of them could have connected the dots to spell murder, she is responsible as the common denominator between both men inciting jealousy, rage, and anger and turning it against each other. Despite her protest to the contrary, if not for her using their emotions against them and to her favor, Brian would not be dead and Thomas Montgomery wouldn't be in prison. But then again, she didn't tell him to kill Brian, and while her behavior is disgusting and reprehensible and irresponsible, most especially for putting her daughter out there and possibly ruining her reputation online, possibly setting her up for more predators, her own daughter, in the eyes of the law, all she did was pretend to be something else or pretend to be someone she wasn't. And at that time, and even possibly now, there's no law against that. Check out the documentary Tall Hot Blonde for more on this case. Now, there's also a really good ID documentary on YouTube called Mystery in the Chat Room. Check that out as well. So guess what time it is? That's right. Time for that spin. All right, it's that time. Again, time to spin that wheel. All right, it looks like next time we're talking about Stranger Than Fiction again. Thanks, wheel. All right, guys, thanks for listening to episode number eight of the Wheel of Crime podcast. Check out our social media. Tune in next time for episode number nine, where we're going to discuss another case that is stranger than fiction. Actually, I was going to do this case, that case first, but I did this one instead, so now I get to do the other one. Yay! Donate to the GoFundMe page. Anyone who donates a dollar to GoFundMe will, re will receive a Wheel of Crime podcast sticker. Donate five or more, you get a sticker and a magnet, you lucky mugs. Have a great week and don't be a dick. shit to do. I could go feed my chickens. I gotta go over there and pet my cats. That way they quit tearing stuff up. Anyway, bye.